0: Do me a favor, track down a Bible if you can, and get with me to Numbers chapter 11. We're doing a series, Walking with the Israelites Through the Desert Wilderness. We're wondering, what does it look like to be faithful to God in hard seasons, like the one that we're in presently? What does it look like to walk faithfully with God through the wilderness? So Numbers chapter 11, um, what we're going to find here, two complaints, two responses, and two lessons. So let me pray and we will get right to work. Lord, we pray right now that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak to your people. We want to know what it looks like to be faithful to you. We want to be honest with our limitations. We want to be honest with our complaints. We want to be honest with our need for you and for your saving work in our life. So, Lord, would you have your way in this time, please, in Jesus' name, amen. Two complaints. The first one is the complaint of the people. The complaint of the people. It shows up in a couple different forms, but first off, in verses 1 to 3, it shows up in the form of complaining over the hardships. Look at verse 1. Now, the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. They're walking with God, and they're looking at the desert wilderness, and they're saying, God, this is This is hard. This is, this is difficult. Uh, we didn't really sign up for this. This is more challenging than we anticipated. And they are complaining about the hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and it arouses the anger of the Lord. And in fact, fire breaks out and consumes a portion of the camp, and Moses intercedes for them, and there is relief. But the first thing that we find is there is this complaint over the difficulties. And we can relate to that, can we not? We look at the difficulties of life, and we want to say, okay, God, why are we having to do this? Why is this the arrangement? Why is this so challenging? So they complained about the hardships, but then they complained about the dinner menu, verses four to nine. They look at the food that's available to them. They look at the food that's available to them there in the desert wilderness, and they are upset about it. So look at verses four to six. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. You see, God had an arrangement with them as they're going through the desert wilderness. He would provide food for them. They'd wake up in the morning, they'd open their tent, and they'd look out, and there was bread on the floor of the desert. And they would gather it up. God said, gather enough for the day. Gather your daily bread, take that and make provisions for the day and cook it and bake it and do these different things. Only gather enough for the day though, except for the day before the Sabbath, gather two days worth and you'll have enough for that Sabbath day as well. So they're gathering this bread from heaven and now they're saying, God, we don't like this food. We remember the menu that we had in Egypt. We remember the fish that we were able to eat at no cost to us. We remember all the side dishes as well, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic. We remember all of these wonderful things and their tastes, and we remember that, and we long for that, and we crave that. So the complaint really is the complaint of the hardships and a complaint over the menu that God is providing for them. So they're complaining, and we're going to look at how God responds to that here in just a minute, but let's also look at the complaint of Moses. So Moses is the leader of the people, and he's looking at this scenario, and he is troubled by it. In fact, he's overwhelmed by the the assignment. He's uncertain of his fitness for it. And in fact, he is depressed to the point of being suicidal. Look at verses 11 and 12. He asked the Lord, this is Moses, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive them? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? God, why, did, why are you doing this to me? Why is this the assignment? Look at these people, look at their complaints, look at their grumbling. Why have you given me this, this impossible assignment? Then he goes on to say in verses 14 and 15, I cannot carry all these people by myself the burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I've found favor in your eyes, do not let me face my own ruin. So Moses now is joining in the complaint. The people are complaining about the hardships and the food. Apparently it's contagious because now Moses is complaining also. He's looking at the people he's seeking to lead and he's saying, God, why are you doing this to me? This is unfair. This is unreasonable. This is impossible. Look at these people of yours. These aren't my people. These are your people, and you're asking me to carry the burden of all of them. Look, if this is how you're going to treat me, I'm done. Sound familiar? Sound like language that might come out of even your own mouth? God, I can't believe this moment that we're going through. Look at this. This is impossible. If this is how you're going to treat us, I'm done. I feel like I've heard that, literally heard that, so many times in the last 18 months out of my own mouth, out of the mouth of some of you, people saying, look, this is too much, God. This is just too much. I'm done with this. There's a complaining that is spilling out of us in, in the season of the desert wilderness. We're, sa- we're willing to say, God, if this is how you're going to treat me, I-, I can't do it anymore. That's how Moses complains. Those are the two complaints. The complaint of the people, the complaint of Moses Now, two responses. What does God do in response to these complaints? Well, the first thing that he does is he responds to Moses and he tells him, I'll multiply leaders for you. Verses 16 and 17. The Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there and I will take some of the power of the spirit that's on you and put it on them and they will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. Here's his first response. He says, look, Moses, I'll take care of you. Bring leaders. I will take power from on high, power from the Spirit. I'll put it on them, and they will share the burden then. You don't have to do this alone. I'll give you a team as well. So God responds in the first place with an invitation to multiply leaders. He responds to the people, though, with a different tone. God is not so gracious with them. If you look at verses 18 to 21, God is upset with their complaint, severely upset with their complaint. And so watch how it unfolds here. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. You want meat? I'm going to give you your meat. Look at this. He says, the Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Well, now the Lord will give you that meat and you will eat it and you'll not just eat it for one day or two days or five, 10 or 20 days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. You want that so badly? I'll, I'll give you exactly what you want. I'll give you a, a hefty portion of what you desire. I'll give you fish until it's coming out of your nose. So God is angry with the people. He responds to Moses with an invitation to multiply leaders, but he responds to the people with really a veiled threat. They're going to get exactly what they want, and they're not going to like it. So Moses wants to clarify the math because he's looking at this response of God, and he's looking at all these people, and he's going, this doesn't make sense, God. How on earth could you ever make good on that? Verses 21 and 22, he says, here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say I will give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if the flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? He's saying, look, the math doesn't make sense, God. How on earth are you planning to feed this people? And God reminds Moses who he's dealing with. God says, is the Lord's arm too short? You know who you're working with here? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. He's saying, look, I can do anything. This is not too hard for me. This is not too challenging for me. This is not impossible. You will watch and I will feed this people. Well, the response is continued. God makes good on his first promise. The elders gather, they get to the tent of meeting. God takes the spirit and puts it on them and they begin to prophesy. They begin to speak in this uh, obvious way in which the Holy Spirit is, is empowering them to do so but actually only 68 of them show up at the tent of meeting. Two of them stay back. They don't listen. And so they're back at their own tents, and all of a sudden they're prophesying. They're speaking, and everyone's like, what on earth is going on? These two men, and in fact, Joshua, the, the uh, servant of Moses, is upset by that. He's like, they're not following your leadership. They're not obeying your commands. They shouldn't be doing these things. And Moses says, I wish that all of God's people were filled with his spirit. So God makes good on that first promise of multiplying leaders, but then God makes good on that second response as well. He judges their unbelief, the unbelief of the people. In verses 31 to 35, wind comes in and drives this flock of quail into the camp. All of these birds are flying in. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but all of a sudden the whole camp is filled with quail. And they're gathering it up, and they're, they're getting it ready, and they've got so much poultry that they don't even know what to do with it. Now they're going to have to store it and keep it and eat it over the next month. It's like my my neighbors that bought, uh, they bought a cow, and um, they're like, we have had burgers and steaks and hamburger helper. We've, we've had so, we don't even know what to do with this thing anymore. It's just too much for us. And that's the situation of the Israelites here. They have so much poultry that they don't know what to do with it, but they're eating this meat. And then at the end of At the end of the chapter, even while the meat is still in their teeth, the anger of the Lord uh, breaks out against them and they are sickened by that plague. So that's the two complaints, the two responses of God. Now, here are the lessons. The first one is a lesson about sin. When we look at this story and we go, what on earth is this about? This This is a pretty grim story. Like, this is hardly appropriate for church with kids here. So what on earth is going on here? What, is, what do we make of this? What do, we, what do we as Christians today in Rockton, Illinois, what do we think about what God is up to? Why did God put this here for us? The first lesson has something to do with sin. Now, the, I'm going to tell you a bunch of different things about sin, but, the, but one of the things we note is sin is surprising. It is surprising. You would not anticipate this response from this people. If you're reading Numbers and you read chapter 10, you read everything leading up to their experience in the desert wilderness and setting out and all the provisions that are made and how God is caring for them. And you read about how they're going, the the cloud of God is with them and they have a blessing that they recite when they set out and they have a blessing that they recite when they camp. And that's right at the end of chapter 10. And you would think these guys are these guys have it made. Like they do life with God and it's obvious God is with them. And so you don't expect it, but then right out of the gate in chapter 11, boom, they're sinning. They're complaining about the hardships. They're lamenting what God has asked them to do. Sin is surprising. One of the features of the desert wilderness is to expose our sin. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2, we'll put it up on the screen. It reads like this. Remember, how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Here's what the wilderness does. It shows you what's really going on. The wilderness will reveal things to you that will even surprise yourself. That's what's happening in the desert wilderness. Sin gets exposed. Sin gets revealed. Sin gets shown for what it really is. Now, I'm going to give you two illustrations of this. One will be kind of funny, one not so much. But the first one is, um, my, my desert wilderness right now is a puppy named Winnie. And I uh, grew up here at the farm with all the dogs, and so, you know, I kind of had a vow. I don't really need to have, I don't need to personally have a dog. I've, uh, I can come out here anytime I want and, and get plenty of it. But my, my family tricked me into getting one. And so... <laughs> My wife works, she's a nurse, and she'll work 12 to 14 hour days and uh, a couple days a week. And so I'll be with our dog Winnie and I'll be walking the dog around and I'll be trying to get our little puppy to poop outside instead of inside. And so I'm walking the dog around the desert wilderness of my yard and I'm you know, with her and here's what's happening. Before I had a dog, I could say, I'm doing pretty well spiritually. I'm, you know, you know, I'm growing in my spiritual walk with the Lord and everything's going quite well. Then I get a dog and all of a sudden I'm like, wow, I didn't know this stuff was in me. I'm walking my dog and I'm thinking ungodly thoughts (laughs) and I'm saying ungodly things and I'm realizing, oh, I didn't know that was in me. That's what the desert wilderness does. It reveals stuff that's really in there that otherwise you wouldn't even know about. That's a grace of God. He's showing us what's really going on at the heart level. So we're going through a moment right now And it is a very hard moment, a desert wilderness in this cultural moment, and and here's what's happening. God is kind enough to show you what's really happening in your heart. He's leading you through the desert wilderness in order to test you to know what is in your heart, whether or not you will keep his commands. So what's going on? Stuff is spilling out. You're upset, you're complaining, you're realizing things about the world, but you're also realizing things about yourself. God is showing you things that are going on. Now, that first example of Winnie, that's the funny one, but the not-so-funny one is what I see as a pastor. In the last 18-plus months, what I've seen coming out of our people is very troubling. It, it, it actually makes some of the things that the Israelites are saying here pale in comparison. What I'm seeing coming out of people and their frustration and their selfishness and their bullheadedness, what I'm seeing come out of some of us really is concerning. And I just wonder, are we aware of that? Are we aware of what is actually being exposed in these moments, the condition, the true condition of our souls? Because God is using this moment to test us in order to know what is in our heart and whether or not we will serve him. And I I want us to, to, to look at that quite honestly and go, what are the things right now that are spilling out of me? What are the things right now that when I'm provoked, Because I'm going through such a difficult scenario, what are the things that are coming out? How are other people experiencing me? So sin is surprising. It shows up and you find things that you didn't expect to find. Well, sin also involves complaining. One of the things that can help us unearth what our sin might be is looking at the things that we're complaining about. Look at verse 1. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. Then it goes on to say in verse 10, Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. So complaining is a part of the experience of sin. Now, I'm not willing to say that they're identical, that every time you complain, it's sin. And the reason why I hedge my bet there is because look at the difference between how Moses complains and God's response versus how the Israelites complain and God's response to them. But certainly, complaining is troubling. We ought to pay attention to it because the Bible tells us in other places like Philippians 2.14, do everything without grumbling or arguing or or another way that is translated, do everything without complaining. And so we need to be careful about the things that we are venting about. But I would say it like this. Our complaints help us to unearth the sin behind the sin. Meaning, what, what is really going on at that core level? And what are the things that really agitate us? What are the things that really get us fired up? What, what is it that we complain about? When we can get to that, then I think we're, we're actually seeing the issue at hand. So what are the things that you're complaining about nowadays? What are the things that you're willing to take to Facebook? What are the things that if you're hanging around with like-minded people that you understand would share your convictions, you're standing around a water cooler, for instance. What are the things that you're, you're saying to each other? What are the things that you're lamenting about right now that you're expressing frustration and concern over? What are those things? If we can trace back to the heart, we might be able to unearth what the sin is behind the sin. So sin involves complaining. We're going to spend a little bit more time on that in just a minute. But sin is also a craving of something. That's the language that's used here multiple times in verse Four, it puts it like this. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. Then in verses 33 and 34, at the end of the account, we're told that the place is named Graves of Craving. Look at it with me. It says, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was named Kabroth Hatava." Because there they buried the people who had craved other food. That, that saying there, that means graves of craving. If you've got a footnote, you can see it. Here's the problem. Sin is an expression of craving. Now, that means that you're strongly desiring something. You're lusting after it. You, you need that thing. And that's what sin does. It, t- it demands something. It says, I will be happy if and when I get this. I will be satisfied if and when I get this. And if I can't have that, then I am not happy. I am not satisfied. I'm not okay. That's language that is very, very close to what the Bible in other places will call idolatry. It's worship. You are saying there is something in the world that you so desperately need that if you don't have it, you're not okay. That you would be willing to say, like Moses, look, if this is how it's gonna be, then just kill me you look at something and you go, this is how it has, it must be this way. I will be happy if and when I can have this. What is that thing that you long for? What is that thing that you're presently craving? What is that narrative that you tell yourself that you say, when this happens, then, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be okay. Because that is language of worship. That is language of idolatry. So sin is a craving. It is a lusting after something. Sin is also unbelief. It's basically saying to God, you're not doing your job. God, you are not taking care of me. You're not giving me what I need. Yes, you're giving me bread from heaven, but that's not good enough. I want, I want a menu that's diverse. I want other things that I can eat. You're not, what you give me is not good enough. It's an expression of unbelief. It's a rejection of God. Look at verse 20. This is how God puts it to the people. He says, you've rejected the Lord who is among you, and you've wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? It's an expression of of unbelief that basically says, God, whatever it is you're trying to do for me, that's not good enough. I don't even want you. Now, this is the pattern of sin from the very beginning. Think about the Garden of Eden and the arrangement that God had set up with humanity you can live here and you can enjoy my garden with me and you can you know be fruitful and multiply you can eat freely from all of these different things that i'm providing for you it is beautiful like we humanity has never had a better arrangement than that and he says this is this is how it works and what does humanity do they say well i'm not sure you have our best interest in mind you're withholding from us you're keeping things back it's an expression of unbelief god you're not good I don't know if I can trust you. You're telling me I can't eat from this one tree. What if that one tree will give me everything I ever wanted? That's how sin works. It takes something and it says, this is what you most need in the world. It doesn't matter what, what God has said. It doesn't matter what he's promising to do for you. If you can't have this, God can't be good. That's the kind of language that we entertain when we sin. And we, we therefore reject God. So sin is an expression of unbelief sin is also irrational it's it's crazy sin is crazy here's what the people are saying we remember the fish that we ate in egypt at no cost question why were they in egypt they were slaves the reason why they got fish was because that was their allotment as slaves they were in slavery and now they're reimagining that scenario and they're going that was wonderful we remember that, and that was good. We had what we wanted there. We had fish, and it was free. It was free to us, except for you know, our, our actual freedom. But otherwise, I mean, we didn't pay any money for it. They didn't ask for a card. They didn't ask for a check. We just had it. It's crazy. That's what sin will do. You will look, you will reimagine the world in relation to this one item, and you'll recast the whole thing in this different scenario. Like, it doesn't matter how great God has been. If there's ever been a people in human history that shouldn't sin, these would be them, right? They saw God at work, His hand at work through the ten plagues in Egypt. They were rescued. They, they were spared from the plague of death as they were covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. They went out and God gave them all kinds of plunder from their Egyptian neighbors they got up against a, a body of water and God parted that water and they walked across on dry ground. Then they're camping with God and he's there in their midst and he's walking with them in the pillar of fly, uh, cloud and fire and, and, and all these different things. Now he's giving them bread from heaven. They've got all of these different advantages, but here's, what, here's what's crazy about sin. They can't even remember any of that. The only thing they're concerned with is fish. That's insane. The only thing they care about in that moment is the fact that they're not getting the right kind of diet that they want. That's crazy. And we can look at them and go, how foolish, right? Like, how did they miss this? The only problem is they're us. They're us. We do the same exact thing. We neglect the goodness of God in our lives because we make something penultimate. We say, I have to have this thing. This is what I really want in life. It doesn't matter what God has done with me historically. What matters right now is he's not giving me what I want. And therefore, he can't be trusted. You see, we do the exact same thing. My wife and I, we were talking uh, just this week because we know really an unfortunate amount of people who have deconstructed their faith. People who have been Christians have beautiful testimonies of God's faithfulness and they have walked away and rejected the faith. And we were just, you know, talking about how does that happen? How does that happen? I mean, how can you look at all these things that God has done in real time for you and just forget it? Just throw it all out the window and say, you know what? I don't follow God anymore. And the answer in every case that I'm aware of, it usually has to do with a particular sin. It has to do with something that that person, those people say, this is how it ought to be. If it's not that way, I reject the whole thing. That's the problem with sin. It is irrational. You can't convince somebody of how how foolish it is. You, You can't persuade them. You can't reason with them because the problem with sin is it clouds everything. It makes you view life through this one particular issue whereby you're saying to God, this is how it must be. It's irrational, which makes it very troubling to diagnose. So as we're sitting here, we might be thinking about other people and going, yeah, they're sinners. Those those people, I can imagine some people who think that way, but here's what I want us to do. We're all vulnerable. We're all a couple poor decisions away from shipwrecking our faith. So what are the sins that we struggle with? And if it's irrational, it's gonna be hard to diagnose, but I think it's worth our effort. So let's just ask a couple of questions. What what are you craving these days? What are the things that you're lusting after? What are the things that you're telling yourself, if I were to get this, or if the world were to move in this direction, if, if it were to move in this direction, then I'd really be happy. Life would be good again. Life would be wonderful. If this came true, that would be heaven on earth. What are those things? or put it oppositely, put it like Moses, what is so frustrating to you that if it doesn't change, you're done? What is so irritating to you that if it doesn't dramatically change, you're you're just saying, look, God, I've had enough. I'm done with this foolishness. What are the things that you're presently craving? Another question is, um, what are you prone to complain about? What do you complain about these days? What is it that really irritates you? So much that you want to bring it before other people and air those grievances and say, look, this is messed up. What are the things that you're complaining about? I think if we can unearth those things, we can identify our sins. And when we do that, then we're in a better position to bring them before the throne of God's grace to receive forgiveness. So the first lesson we found is a lesson about sin. It's a very troubling lesson. It's something that we all deal with, but we have to be honest. Here's the second lesson then. And it has to do with what God does about sin. How does God deal with sin? If you look at the story again, and you just think through, what was, what was his fundamental response to sin? Two things show up. One is judgment. What does God do with sin? He judges it. But a second one happens also simultaneously, and that's mercy and grace. So God fundamentally relates to sin with both judgment and grace. And that's how it has always been. God deals with sin with both judgment judgment and grace. This is his work. This is what he's able to do. We might wonder at how it is possible, but he reminds us, is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true. He is able to deal with sin. So judgment, there's an obvious judgment that shows up even in the first few verses. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard this, his anger was aroused. The fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. There's there's an obvious judgment there, saying this is what happens when you reject the Lord. Toward the end of the story, you get another obvious example like that. Verse thirty-three: While the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. Obvious judgment. You don't believe, you don't trust, you don't follow, you reject God, here is judgment. That's the obvious judgment. The not-so-obvious judgment is that God sometimes will judge us by giving us what we want. That that idea comes from the book of Romans in chapters 1 and 2, but sometimes God gives us what we're requesting. And that's not God being gracious to us. That's God letting us experience his passive judgment. Or we say, I have to have this. And he says, fine, you can have it. It's not going to be great for you. You can have it, and it's not going to go well for you. Sometimes we experience the judgment of God in that way. Sometimes we're saying to God, I have to have it this way. And he says, fine. You're going to see just how that's going to work out for you. That's what he does here with the Israelites. They get quail and they get so much of it that it's coming out of their nostrils and they finally realize, look, we didn't know what was best. We thought we had to have it and we got it. It wasn't great. So God deals with sin with judgment. This is a part of God's character. He's a holy God. We can't dismiss this side of him. Sin is not something to be trifled with. It's, n- it's not something that God just winks at and goes, yeah, I don't really care about that. No, God is holy and he reserves the right to judge sin. So he deals with sin judgment. But he also deals with sin with grace. He's gracious towards Moses. He gives Moses a provision to help him in that leadership assignment. He takes leadership from Moses and he gifts it to 70 other individuals to help him carry the load and the weight of leading a people. But look at verse 25. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him And took some of the power of the spirit that was on Moses and put it on the 70 elders. And then I think Moses gets it right when he's noticing that even the two that stayed back and didn't listen are full of the spirit of God. He says, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put them, would put his spirit on all of them. And so we get this indication that God is being gracious in this moment in helping Moses and in helping the people move forward. Now, this is a very dim expression of grace, but it's there. The, the majority of the weight in this story is on judgment, but at least we get a little glimmer of hope here in the fact that God is gracious to Moses and to the leaders and therefore to the people. So how does God deal with sin in general? It's the same way. God, throughout all of scriptures, deals with sin with both his judgment and his grace. And the place where that comes into clear focus of how they come together, Calvary, the place where both judgment and grace are shown in their fullest expression is at the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the place where God is judging sin. He's pouring out his wrath. His anger is being exhausted there, but at the same time, his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace to the undeserving is being freely extended to all who would call on him for salvation that's the place where we understand, how does God deal with sin? He deals with sin at the cross of Jesus Christ. We're all sinners in need of his pardon, in need of his forgiveness, and the one place that we can go to receive it is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Jesus Christ is the one who stands in our place, takes the penalty due to us, and gifts us with his obedience and his righteousness. This is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that God looks at sin and he both judges it and pardons it. He gives us both his judgment and his grace and we receive that freely by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, are there any other indications in our story that this is how God acts? One of the things, one of the reasons why we're in the book of Numbers and one of the reasons why I preach from the Old Testament is because I want to help us learn how to read the Bible and find the Lord there. It's, it's, as Sinclair Ferguson said, it's more of an instinct than a skill. It's something that you come to be able to do instinctually. But where in our story do you find the Lord kind of looming in the shadows, if you will? Well, you find it in the person of Moses. Now, Moses is not a perfect ex- example of this, but he, he foreshadows what Christ will one day do. Look with me one more time at verse 2. Verse 1, the people complain... In the presence of the Lord and the anger of the Lord is aroused. Verse 2, when the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. You see, this, this is, Moses is kind of like a foreshadowing of Christ. We all complain. We all look at the world and we fall short of what God wants and, and we sin and we arouse the anger of the Lord. But here's what Jesus Christ does. He, he does exactly what Moses did here, but even better. He prays to the Lord, and the fire dies down. He doesn't say like Moses, these people are a pain. I can't believe you've given me this assignment. These people are jokers. How, why do I have to carry them? Why, you know what? If this is the arrangement, just take my life. No, he doesn't say that. He, he talks with a different tone. He says, yes, these people are sinners. Yes, these people are heavy. This, this is a burden to bear. But he says, take my life instead of theirs. He doesn't complain with that sort of tone that Moses has. He offers himself for us. He prays and the fire of the Lord dies down. That's the good news of the gospel. All of us are sinners. All of us are like the Israelites. We're cut from the same cloth. All of us fall short of what God wants for us. All of us are complainers. I mean, I know that personally because I hear your complaints. We're all complainers. (laughs) We, We look at the world and we say, God, this is not how it should be. I'll tell you how to run this thing. And all of us, therefore, arouse the anger of the Lord. And if we got what we deserved, it'd be judgment. But Jesus Christ stands in our place, and he exhausts the wrath of God, and he gifts us with his righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. So let's take a minute and pray, and let's have the band come and lead us in song once more. But let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your patience with us. This morning, as we think about sin and its pervasiveness and the way that it surprises us, because some of us are, maybe we're not even self-aware of our sin, but you're bringing us through the desert wilderness and it's showing up. And we're realizing, okay, this is my struggle too. Lord, would you help us to take that sin to the cross of Jesus Christ to find relief? And would you change us, Lord? We don't want to be grumblers. We don't want to be complainers. We we don't want to try to tell you how to manage the world that you've made. We want to trust you. We want to walk by faith. We want to to live faithfully for your glory. So thank you, Lord, for the cross. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that you deal with sin by both judging it and extending mercy and grace to the undeserving. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.